From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. Hello and welcome to Latopia After Dark, the net's first and foremost writer's salon. We feature a mixture of old friends and usually a few new faces too, drawn from the worlds of writing, publishing, media, culture and the arts generally. Our agenda is simple. If it's interesting to writers, it's important to us. On tonight's show, Richard and Judy are back on TV. Did anyone notice? I'm sorry to raise this, but... Are you suffering from false apology syndrome? Look closely at those who patronize you, warned Goethe to his fellow artists. Half are unfeeling, half untaught. We ask, how would you like a patron? Plus, don't shush me in the library. I'm drinking my coffee and eating my crisps. And in a heartwarming moment, a little later in the show, our generous panelists help an older couple in their hour of need. To finish it all off, I know you love it. We're playing the thoroughly infamous by now Toadsuck Arkansas Reverse Shuffle six-card strip pokerette. But first, let's catch up with The Writing Week. The Writing Week in 60 Seconds. The story of Edgar Sortel by David Rabluski is still at the number one position in the New York Times hardcover fiction list, and Hot, Flat and Crowded by Thomas Friedman remains at the same position in the non-fiction charts. Uh, the big news this week is, as you'll have heard from Latopia Daily, that the French writer Jean-Marie Gustave Leclésio has won the 2008 Nobel Prize in Literature. The big question is, who is he and what does he write? His work apparently reeks of a seemingly insatiable restlessness and a sense of wonder about other places and other cultures, which by itself is rather unusual coming from the nation that gave us the word chauvinism. The Swedish Academy praised Monsieur Leclésio, 68, as the author of New Departures, Poetic Adventure and Sensual Ecstasy, explorer of a humanity beyond and below the reigning civilization. However, the British bookmakers Ladbrokes saw such a surge in bets on Monsieur Leclésio leading up to the announcement that it decided to suspend betting. Corruption? Surely not. It's a well-known fact that Ladbrokes customers are dab hands when it comes to the literary stakes. And that's what's been going on this week. Remember to keep up to date with our companion podcast, Letopia Daily, five days a week. Our panel in tonight's coffee shop of a show are from Fort Lauderdale in Florida, an Americano, extra hot. Writer and leading lawyer Donna Borman, Donna's first book, is a writer's guide to the courtroom due to be published in May next year. She's also working on several young adult writing projects and, as you know, she presents The Right Report every day on Litopia Daily. From England's West Country, low-fat, tall, latte, Dave Bartram. He's working on a novel for the young adult market and he's also a lecturer. Making a welcome and long overdue return to Latopia after dark. Things have been, I don't know, way too sane round here recently. Our triple shot macchiato, Richard Howes, is one of the first students to be accepted for Britain's highly prestigious National Academy of Writing. And finally, the best bit of a visit to a coffee shop, our dunkable muffin from Washington DC. And making a welcome return to our humble show is Sarah Davis who we last heard from a full year ago as she was about to give up one of the top jobs in British children's publishing to move to the States and become an agent. 
Sarah was publishing director for Macmillan Children's Books, where she developed a wide children's list, ranging from preschool novelty books to sophisticated teen fiction. She has published Judy Bloom, Meg Cabot, Philip Pullman, Carl Hyerson, Eva Abbotson, and even Jerry Halliwell, yes, the Spice Girl. Sarah now operates the Greenhouse Literary Agency in beautiful, leafy Virginia, and in 12 short months, she's spotted several big new children's authors and done fantastic deals for them. And that's our ebulliently frothy panel for tonight. So now let's meet our panellists up close and personal. Donna, where do you stand on instant? Is it really coffee? Well, if they ever come up with anything that doesn't taste like it's a byproduct of my car's last oil change, I'll drink it. <laughs> um, so far, no. As far as I can tell, it's not even in the coffee family. No, I totally agree with that. Dave, uh, do you grind it yourself? Oh, I used to, but then I realised how pretentious it was and I stopped. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, you've been stateside now for a year. Have you learnt the coffee shop lingo? Well, I, I am a total coffee nut, but as always split between the sort of bicontinental lobes of my brain. But I must admit this summer I have fallen for the Starbucks mocha frappuccino light hold the whipped cream. Yes, so the answer is yes, you have actually. Oh dear, once back, never back. Uh, Richard, how many cups is too much? It depends where you're getting it from. If, for example, if you want a Pacific coffee from Hawaii, it'll last one, can last the whole day. Uh, a Panama sweet, bright and balanced from the Americas, uh, I'd say about three. And if you're going to go for one of the lighter African, possibly Ethiopian with the late to medium body, you're going to need six or seven of those <laughs> to keep it in. Gosh, well, that's an amazing answer. Thank you very much, Rich. I think we had a complete brief. In fact, you should write a book on it. Well, now you've had a quick sip of our panellists, gentle listener, it's time to put them to work. And now, the most hotly anticipated moment of the show. It's time to play Pitch the Nasty Agent. <laughs> yes, the idea is simple. I give each panellist two book titles in total, not one after the other, but, you know, we do rounds. You'll see how it works in a minute. And they've got to pitch them back as if they were in some sort of nightmarish editorial meeting. And this week's titles are all taken from the list of the 10th Doctor Who books from the website SF Booklist Co. UK. The 10th Doctor is the name given to the 10th incarnation of the fictional character known as The Doctor, seen on screen in the long-running BBC television science fiction series Doctor Who, played by actor David Tennant. And if this means absolutely nothing to you, Ask your kids. Right, so Donna, first up, we've got a book by Stephen Cole called The Art of Destruction. Well, um, I think you're going to really like this one. It's a, a vicious author known for attack books on political candidates, tries to sell his latest attack tome in the candidate's family's home country. Wow. He's prompted arrested for visa violations. Will the country do the right thing and have him beheaded after a couple years of torture, or will he simply be deported and then whine about how unfairly he was treated? Yes. Well, I mean, good heavens, I, I think that's just extra, it's Byzantine, really, in its complexity. Uh, Sarah, we've got, um, we've got to give some marks to Donna out of 10. And using both of your hats, both as a, a, an agent and former publisher, what, what do you think out of 10 for that? Well, I, I think uh, I, I always like to leave a little room for, for growth and development, so I will give it a nine. <laughs> a nine, yeah. Yeah. All right, it's a good start, though. Dave, I Am a Dalek by Gareth Roberts. Right, well, um, I only have to give you the subtitle to realise 
how big this book would be. It is I Am a Dalek, Gordon Brown, The Biography. <laughs> Sharp. Richard, what do you reckon? Richard? Straight down the line with a five. Oh. Oh! Now, Awful. that's really set the cat amongst the pigeons. All right, Richard, <laughs> it's your turn. It's your turn now. Now, let's, let's focus, because this is re- obviously going to get very tense. Very made, nice. made of Steel. The title made is Made of Steel, Steel. by Terence Dix. Well, uh, this is actually a Doctor Who book. Would you, would you believe it? Martha Jones is getting married, but who is the maid of honour? It's not a best friend. And while the Doctor is shocked that she's tying the knot, it's not him either. And in some crazy non-synchronicity with the 2008 film Maid of Honor, starring yeah. Patrick Dempsey and Michelle Monaghan, no, <laughs> something's not right. And the, only the Doctor can work out the conundrum to the latest evil plot of the Cyberman. Martha's Maid of Honor is in fact a Cyberman who's cloaked in a frock. But will the wedding go to plan when your Maid of Honor is made of steel? Well, I think we've had the entire book there. Um, I, the least I can do really is ask Dave to return the favour. What do you reckon, Dave? <laughs> well, um, I think the first thing is something by somebody called Terence Dix, really. Um, yeah. Yes. Not She's understanding Doctor Who. I know, I know. It, it, it's a five, isn't it? It's a five. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, <laughs> How did I'm I know? Shallow. <laughs> How did I know you are going to do that? And Sarah, end of the first round, you've got The Many Hands by Dale Smith. Right, well, I've got a real corker for you. Um, the Many Hands is the first book in a wholly new genre, actually, called Erotic Cookery. Oh, yes. And it's, it's been created It's been created by a group of elderly swingers in suburban Surbiton, which, for American listeners, is the place where things always like this seem to happen in Britain. Um, the recipes, I believe, apparently date back to the era of Kama Sutra and require the cook to be completely naked except for an apron and to, you might say, whip up some poppadoms and such like, while hanging from Ikea light fittings and flat pack furniture. Yes. I believe there are extensive footnotes, high heels of course, plus a strap-on Allen key attached to the front cover. (laughs) Oh, I've gone all hot and bothered now. Uh, I do not have enough hands for this, I tell you. I know, exactly. Uh, Donna, you're you're a safe pair of hands. What what, what do you think? Well, I I think it's a really neat concept. The only thing that that I found a little bit disturbing was the image of my mom and her boyfriend that that put in my head, probably (laughs) seared permanently. So I have to take off a point and give her an eight. An eight. All right. All right. No, no, it's all fair and and love and whatever that was. Uh, Round two. Donna, back to you again. Wooden Heart by Martin Day. Well, um, this um, is a a novel um, where, despite the acclaim an American writer receives worldwide for her work, a hard-headed Nobel panel won't even consider her for an award because they're anti-American bigots. Can anyone melt these wooden-hearted judges, or should someone just drive a wooden stake through them and get a new panel? Yeah. Oh, so sad. It's, It's a tragedy, really. What do you think, Richard? Uh, uh, sorry, I've just woken up. Um, must be a three. Ooh, three. I don't think anyone's had a three for, actually, since the last time you were on. Um, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dave, The Nightmare of Black Island by Mike Tucker. 
Well, this is this is very, very to the minute uh, hot fiction. It's about a group of stockbrokers who are shipwrecked on an island, and they start short selling coconuts to each other based on mortgages of small areas of coconut palms and breadfruit trees. Fantastic. However, when the coconut palms prove to have shallow roots and the breadfruit trees don't produce fruit, it all goes horribly wrong <laughs> on Black Island. I think there's a lesson there for everyone. Really, it's a modern day morality tale. What do you think, Sarah? Well, I would say we don't like stockbrokers very much. So, um, good pitch, but only a seven. Seven. Ooh. Right. Okay, Richard, Sick Building by Paul Maggers. Okay, this is the true investigation into how Kevin MacLeod, the presenter of the UK's Grand Designs Programme, has been undermining all the home developments he's covered over the, uh, the six or seven series, and how he is preparing to generate a new program on how these these developments have, have all broken down. But thanks to Paul Maggers, he has investigated Kevin MacLeod and he has found out exactly what he's done to these developments and where they're going to go wrong and how, how the uh, materials that he's used has undermined the uh, stability of these places and how they're, they're just not up to scratch, to EU scratch. Mm. Well, I think that's very worthy, very commendable. Um, Donna, what do you think? Hmm. I've never heard of any of these people, and it sounds, you know, just too British. I'd have mm. to give it a uh, two. You, know, sound, you sound like a member of the Nobel Prize for Literature Committee, too. <laughs> and finally, Sarah, The Last Dodo by Jacqueline Rayner. Yes, right. Well, The Last Dodo publishes on November the 5th in the US market first, of course. <laughs> and it's a searing political analysis and memoir of a US vice presidential candidate. For the, data, the doubting sales team, I can assure you the book is completely written. The facts have all been checked and it simply awaits the dropping in of the protagonist's name. I'm told, though, the marketing spend is a little small because dodos do find themselves shuffling off into oblivion somewhat quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Touching. All I can say, touching. What do you think, Dave? Um, it's a tough one because I don't know who it's about and why should I care? So, <laughs> dodos, interesting, extinction, hunting, could be a nice connection there. There's a whole Lady Die thing going on at the moment, obviously, possibly, maybe yes, not. Yes. So, it's... Um, it's a six. It's a six. Okay. Well, at the end of that particular round, which is the end of the game, this is uh, this is really one for the record books. Donna's got twelve. Dave's, Dave's got twelve. Richard's got seven. But you know, Richard is well known for coming from behind. If you excuse yeah. the expression. And Sarah <laughs> has fourteen. How about that? On you go. Yes. How about that? There's still a chance, of course, in the final round. People with, uh, well, anyone basically can, can compete to win the meaningless title of Latopian of the Week. Look out, world, it's time to rumble. Let's get ready to rumble. This is the moment when Latopia's literati lock horns. The Brannigan of the Week. Yeah, um, so did you notice? Richard and Judy are back on British television screens. Richard Maidley and Judy Finnegan, the British husband and wife equivalent of Oprah. That's for our American listeners who 
never heard of Richard and Judy, I'm sure. Um, they're back. The couple started in local television, became household names on ITV daytime, daytime television, something called This Morning, uh, then left that show in 2001 for a primetime slot on Channel 4, which is national, where they racked up 1.5 million viewers. Richard and Judy quickly became the go-to show for all British book publicists, and an appearance on their couch launched dozens of writing careers, and indeed bestsellers. But here's the rub. Their new show on digital channel Watch, which I freely admit I've never actually heard of, attracted an average audience of just 100,000 viewers. And by way of comparison, if our own humble podcast keeps growing at the rate it has been over the past quarter, we will have close to 100,000 listeners within the next year. How about that? So, has the magic of Richard and Judy vanished, and is this another body blow to mainstream commercial publishing in the UK? Um, let's go to Sarah first, wearing your, your old publisher's hat. I mean, Richard and Judy really was quite something, wasn't it? Yes, it's, it certainly was. Um, you know, what was their secret? Well, apart from the fact that Richard was really quite attractive in a sort of James Bond-esque kind of a way. Mm. Bit um, of a cad, I think they actually. Did. Slightly <laughs> caddish, don't you think? A little raffish. Yes, there's a sort of ultra debonair, chiselled sort of thing going on there. Yeah. But to be serious, they they were just wonderful um, because they really, really got enthusiastic about books. And it's always that word of mouth enthusiasm that sells books. Yeah. But but now, I mean, a hundred thousand viewers. It's not is it? It's not going to do it anymore, is it? I would say probably not. Um, you know, one thing we do know about this crazy book world is that it moves on and it's probably moving on past Richard and Judy maybe but who knows let's mm. give them a chance yeah yeah well fair enough um, Dave have you ever given them a chance um I remember watching it once or twice and I think their kind of secret is it's like two old friends of your mum and dad dropping into your front room isn't it yeah for a, for a one too many sherry really yeah, basically, and you're waiting for the for the husband to do say embarrassing things, and then try and make up for them afterwards endlessly. <laughs> yeah. um, make, and I think make that a was pass the secret, of the housekeeper really. or something. Yeah, yeah, incredibly matey was mm. was their secret, I think, yeah. and that's why the recommendations worked, and yeah. uh, and that's why it doesn't work on 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 satellite because you go and switch on the TV and you just flick one of the terrestrial channels, it's there. You've got to hunt around, you've got to switch your thing, and you've got to do this and do that and actually go and find it. Yeah. And people well, can't I, I be have, asked to, to go and find it. I have to interrupt you there, Judy, um, because everyone <laughs> uses, uh, uses their, their sky and, and their digital channels now. No one just goes straight to terrestrial because it's, it's just backwards, isn't it? Unless, no, they do, they the do down here, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry yeah, about well, that. Yeah, well, over here it's... Over here in the States, I'm trying to learn how to find all the channels because, I mean, just, just working the, the darned remote is quite a challenge for me on that level. <laughs> Start well, looking under the sofa. Apart, I mean, apart, <laughs> yes. apart from Oprah, who I think probably still, has, maybe she's lost a little bit of her power, I don't know, but apart from Oprah, I mean, is, is there anything else, um, Sarah and Donna, uh, stateside, that is the magic passport to sales success, do you think? Really, only Oprah is all that uh, I can think of. Mm, mm. Sarah, yeah, I, I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen anything yet. I must say. 
It's, I mean, books, they've rarely found their niche on television, I think. I mean, some, there are some really appalling shows. I mean, there was one, I think, still going on, Sky Arts. So I'm sure nobody actually watches. And it's a sort of a really dull, worthy procession of authors who look vaguely embarrassed and ill at ease to be there. And they're suddenly asked to, to sell something, which authors have pretty much never done in their whole lives. I mean, this is, this is rather unfair on them, isn't it, Richard? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Um, I, I was just thinking, actually, that the, the only other brilliant way of, of advertising your book is getting it made into a movie yep uh, to, certainly to have you know a, a backlog of books and uh city of ember has just come out the uh, the children's book just coming out in the cinema yeah that's right uh, and that, that that's got a, a sequel and a threequel you know following it up so that's automatically going to generate sales mm. for that mm. um the duchess obviously um and James Bond always pretends to pull from the uh, canon, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Ah, gone are the days when it was just, you know, you just needed to get your author onto one programme and you were guaranteed a bestseller. What a shame. Um, I'm sorry. Actually, there is a show here for non-fiction, uh, The Daily Show. Um, authors go on The Daily Show and they do quite well for non-fiction. They don't do fiction. Well, they do, but they, tend, they tend to be celebrities already, don't they? They tend to be people who have really got a profile. So again, well, not necessarily. So, you know, if, if John Stewart finds the topic interesting, he'll he'll put you on. He'll do it. Mm -hmm. Worth trying. Has he ever done one on badges? Badges. <laughs> badges, <laughs> Richard. Did you get badges over in America? <laughs> Their badges are bigger know. than our badges. Huh? We we get we get groundhogs. We we have groundhogs ah. outside. Groundhog and a few chipmunks. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Um, an article in the Fall, Rich uh, Fall Richard, the Fall issue of In Character, a journal of everyday virtues by Theodore Dalrymple, heralds a new social disease. False apology syndrome. There is a fashion these days, writes Dalrymple, for apologies. Not apologies for the things that one has actually done oneself, but for public apologies by politicians for the crimes and misdemeanours of their ancestors. Mr Blair, the then British Prime Minister, apologised to the Irish for the famine. One of the first public acts of the new Australian Prime Minister was to apologise to the Aborigines for the dispossession of their continent. Pope John Paul II apologised to Muslims for the Crusades. There are many other examples, writes Dalrymple, and there are also demands for apologies by aggrieved or supposedly aggrieved groups. Well, if you think about it, he's probably got a point. People are apologising all the time for the th things they can't be personally held responsible for. And I certainly am. <laughs> so what's, what's all this about? And, and what does it signify, do you think, Dave? Um, I don't think it signifies anything. I think it's hilarious. You could go to the Muslims and say, look, I'm really sorry about the Crusades. Like, oh, forget it. It was all right. <laughs> oh, no worries. It's all in the past. Let's move on. Or to the Aboriginals. Look, I'm really sorry. We, we just slaughtered millions of you and took your children away and ruined your continent and introduced rabbits. They go, oh, don't worry about it, mate. Fair go. Yeah, it's, it's bollocks, isn't it, really? Sorry. Do apologise for language. It's, it's a bit nonsense. Richard, who would you like to apologise to, if anyone, and why? Um, I, I suppose, really, I, I should apologise to the uh, two Jehovah's Witnesses I had at the door uh, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do to them? Well, I, I just refused to agree with them that the Bible had any basis, in fact. Oh, legitimate point uh, of view? They, yeah, so they, in turn, apologised I wasn't getting into heaven. Mm. Sad, really. Uh, Donna, <laughs> what's the best apology you've ever had? 
I, I never get apologies. Americans don't apologize. I have had lots of cases that would have settled way more cheaply if the company would apologize to the former employee, but yeah. they'd rather pay the cash, which yeah. is great for me. Yeah. Is, is that true, Sarah? Americans don't apologize? Um, you know, I haven't done a study of that yet. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking about this question generally, and I was thinking, uh, what uh, you know, have I ever had a really good apology? And I think I've come to the conclusion it's always me apologising. It feels That's like that, I, doesn't it? Yes. It does. <laughs> but actually, the, the people I would like to apologise to right now, and very publicly, would be my two sons, who I um, recommended to put all their savings in a certain Icelandic bank called iSave. uh -oh. Uh oh! Yeah. Uh oh! Mum did bad. Yeah. Oh, oh that, that's that's nothing like um, the local councils around here. My local council put five million in. Yeah. Well, oh, really? they've, they've done it all yeah. over the UK, and I don't know if they're going to get their money back or not. I think individuals are safe, aren't they? I mean, far be it from me to give financial advice. Well, um, I think you're safe as long as you can go through the the probably very long-winded process of no doubt several months to get it back. But meanwhile, it's kind of in effect gone, it's, frozen. Frozen Icelandic money, yeah. Yeah, that's because they're, they're saying, no, no, leave it in there. If you leave it in there, then everything's going to be fine. But they don't, yeah. I mean, the thing is about all these these quasi-apologies that you, you do hear from time to time. I mean, actually, the important stuff never gets apologised for, as Donna was saying. You know, I mean, just in, invading somebody else's country and things like that. They don't apologise for these things. They don't stand up and say, we were wrong. I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting old and crotchety. Um, a new book out this week. Patronising the Arts by Marjorie Garber. In it, she considers the means by which most of Western civilization has paid for its great works of artistic achievement. Patronage by the super-rich, and quite often, super-nasty. Reviewing it, Joseph Epstein writes in the Weekly Standard that patronage in the arts tends to illustrate the cynical proverb that holds no good deed goes unpunished. Even with the great good luck of generous patrons, the artist has left where he has always been, attempting to master his craft, trying to narrow the gap between his talent and his ambition, alone with his mad passion, ill-rewarded if rewarded at all, a grant here, a small prize there, hoping to make a little dent in the world's great yawning indifference. Mm. Well, writers receive very little by way of patronage when compared to other arts. Why is this so? And is it good or bad, do you think, Dave? Um... It's an interesting point, really, because, I mean, arts patronage is, is quite hilarious because it generally relates to a huge solipsism on behalf of the patron, doesn't it, more than anything else. And I think in if you can't really um, put patronage to writers because it would be hard to, dis to disguise the solipsism effectively if somebody said, write a novel about me. Uh, go on, I'm, I'm really good. Uh, whereas they can do a painting of where they live or their family or something and yeah. make it out like it's something else. But you could write write me a book because I'm great. You yeah. know, they just can't hide it and pretend it's something else. I think that's probably why it hasn't been patronised in the way um, that the other arts have been. Mm. Richard, um, would you like to be patronised by anybody in a good way? Uh, I'm, I'm patronised by everybody. Yeah, I thought you'd say uh, that. I suppose that's why I apologise to them. Yeah. Um, Yes, I'd love to be. I'd love to be patronised by all the uh, all the members of the National Academy of Writing, uh, taken under their wing, and they can pay for me to sit at home and pretend to write my book. Fantastic. Yeah, sounds good. Um, it sort of makes me um, think of actually a film I saw uh, fairly recently. In fact, it's been out for a few years, but Tim Robbins' Cradle Will Rock. 
Uh, it was about the Works Progress Administration in the US, uh, which was created as part of Roosevelt's New Deal during the last Great Depression as a way of employing people in the arts, drama and the media. Um, Donna, do you think this is the proper function of, of government to replace the private patron? Well, I think that um, there is a, a use for government funding for the arts. Um, National Public Radio and some of the public television stations are certainly government funded. I don't know how you'd do it much for writers. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how you could ever make anything like government funding for writers really work because mm -hmm. how would government get back the money and the, the purpose of a writer other than to um, put out the product is to sell it to a publishing company. So I'm not sure how that would work. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is totally commercial, really, isn't it, Sarah? I mean, isn't, that's one of the restraints, really, of the, of the publishing world, that if it's not going to work commercially, it ain't going to happen. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that when government and writers come together, um, it's probably always going to be slightly difficult because if you're writing something, the government's paying you or whatever, you're going to have to be quite nice about it. So I think there's intrinsically a bit of a problem, but I do think writers could certainly do with more support. And when I, you know, think of my writers who are invariably writing in the middle of the night, you know, mm. you do wish perhaps there are a few more grants around or something like that mm. to help them out a bit. Yeah. Um, government and the arts. Well, interesting little segue into the next news item this week. Andy Burnham, the British Secretary of State for Culture, this week launched a consultation on changing the face of British libraries, which he believes are, quote, out of touch. Under his proposals, libraries could install coffee franchises, mm, bookshops and film centres. Noise bans will also be reviewed. So no, no more shushing. Mr Burnham apparently told the Public Library Authorities Conference in Liverpool that libraries must, quote, look beyond the bookcase and not sleepwalk into the era of the e-book. Well, um, is he right? Uh, Camden Council, who we've mentioned once or twice on the Taper After Dark, Camden Council in North London will lift its ban on mobile phones and its libraries this month. And users will be allowed to bring in snacks and drinks. The council is also considering providing computer games at its libraries. Richard, is this good or bad? Uh, let, let me deal with that in reverse order. Okay. Um, the computer games, uh, we at Bracknell Library uh, have been uh, allowing use of uh, computer games, you know, renting them out. Uh, PS2 games, and as of this week, PS3, Nintendo Wii, Xbox 360, and Nintendo DS, all available for uh, hiring, which I think is great because I don't have to buy my games anymore. Um, is that, is that the, the proper function of a library? I mean, the right way I read this actually was that, that they're going to be allowing people to play computer games in libraries. Uh, no, see, I, I, I don't like that because they'll steal the... Um, <laughs> I've got a friend who, who works in uh, Manchester Library and uh, he uh, they used to have a PS1 uh, and there, there would never be a, a month go by without somebody trying to steal it. God. Um, it, it's, it's just crazy. You know, it's, it's a great idea to add all these things, but you add the public to the mix and it's, it's not going to go right. Mm. I, I, just, I hate the idea of uh, allowing them to eat and drink, at, for example, sitting at, at the computers. In, well, is, the is, is it a good idea to have all these things? Um, what, what do you think, Dave? Um, I think for your average tramp, it's fantastic. <laughs> you know, they can go through the bin, pick up the old McDonald's wrappers with the half-eaten burgers and, you know, the, 
the cold cup of tea off the park bench, go in there, sit down, enjoy it, maybe, you know, play a computer game. They can spend hours in there in the warm in the winter. So I, th- I think for the homeless, it's a real step forward for libraries. Yes. It's disturbing how much expertise he seems to have on that. <laughs> I've done a study. Well, I personally think we have to say no to the mobile phones because the library would be full of people saying, I'll be on the seven o'clock train, have the dinner ready. And yes. that would be just ghastly. But yes. um, uh, I, I do think libraries have a very important social role, um, not least for children and teenagers who, um, and actually people, anyone, who, who's, anyone whose day is, is not easy to fill. Um, I, I think there is a role for the library you know, as, as a, something else other than simply sitting and reading or borrowing books. I think it is a sort of, it, it should be a sort of hub of a community as well. Which I'm a bit yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I was, go ahead. I was, I was say, I was, I'm a bit bothered about the video game things because something that really bothers me. You know the Nintendo Wii. Mm. Um, I've always <laughs> read it. Uh, I, I thought it was a Geordie thing. I thought it was the Nintendo Wii. Um, <laughs> and it's really confused me. I don't know what is going that, on. That, there. Sorry, that is the noise I make now after I after I finish playing it because my back aches. <laughs> I'm a, I, I think I think I'm you know I'm sort of rapidly turning into a crotchety old man. I mean I think Andy Burnham is, is is completely crackers actually. I mean libraries are there for a purpose. They're repositories of books. They're for people to to use books in and not go and eat their their snacks and crisps and coffee and thin skinny lattes yeah, and whatever else. Yeah, or am I, am I being I mean, a, my... Yeah, go on. Yeah, you're you're being a crotchety old old thing because my 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 local library back home in Britain is a really depressing and crumbling place, chiefly notable for its cracked concrete and sort of strange smell, Mm. and it it looks and smelled exactly. Dave would know about that, I think. (laughs) And I I think something has to happen, or they will simply die. Yes, but I I think what they need to do is wait till all the old people are dead. I mean, they're phasing them out as we speak. I know that, Um, and and then you know. In a fifty years or so, we will have nice young people as old folk, and they will, won't mind using mobile phones and the such. Like, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let me just let me just focus this. I mean, I, I want to respond to that because um, I think I think you've touched on a serious point there. Um, but isn't the fate of the library inextricably linked to the fate of the book? And if we're saying that you know books are only sort of tangentially relevant now to to our local society, then surely that's you know that presages the end of the book too, doesn't it, Sarah? Oh, my goodness. Well, it'd be interesting to see in these um, economic times in which we find ourselves whether there is a bit of a return to the library. Um, I mm. mean, surely, I mean, as a child, I mean, I was always taken to the library. That's what you did. You didn't buy books. You wouldn't have thought of buying books. But now people have been used to having more disposable income. I mean, as we know, in many ways, the book industry is still alive and well, but people have simply had the money to go and buy. But maybe, you know, that won't always be the case. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Gosh, well, thank you very much, panel. We could talk all night, of course, but um, uh, right now we've got to give some urgent advice to a couple of elderly people in trouble. Got questions? We've got the answers. It's Latopia's Cry for Help. Yes, that's right. Um, As I like to do about this time of night every week, a quote from the immortal lyricist Rick Astley, as he wrote in 2002, Cry for help is all I need. All I need is a cry for help. Cry for help is all I need. All I need is a cry for help. Sheer genius. Uh, Every week, as you know, we take our listeners' inquiry, question or dilemma, 
Give it to our panel for some ill-thought-through, gut-instinctual, casually-meant consideration. And this week's question comes from an elderly couple, and we only have their initials, you don't have to give us your full name if it's a little embarrassing, R and J, who write from somewhere apparently in television land, wherever that is, um, and they say, Please help us. We used to be very successful. People called us the king and queen of daytime TV. But recently, we have started a new show where things are much, much quieter. Our viewing figure is low. Can the panel suggest ways of getting it up? We are very moral, so can suggestions not include artificial inflation? We know this could make it hard for the panel. Well, R&J, let's hear how our panel can help you. What do you think, Donna? I think that they should do whatever they can to get on Oprah. I hear her endorsement is fantastic for ratings. Yeah, sounds good. Good advice. Uh, Dave, any, anything uh, you can add to that? Um, I think what they should do is um, maybe move away from their svelte, sophisticated and seamless performances and go and bicker on camera, make asses of themselves, um, be rude to guests, <laughs> um, make stupid <laughs> mistakes, perhaps flash a bit of cleavage, um, generally, you know, patronise, insult and accidentally trip over their guests. And I think I'm sure the ratings will pick up very yeah, quickly. Sounds good. Uh, dumb it down, basically, from Dave there. And, I, and I, that sounds very sensible advice to me. It's what television is all about, isn't it? Um, what do you think, Sarah? Well, um, I seem to remember earlier in the program telling about this this new book uh, called The Many Hands, which Ooh. was an erotic cookery book. Mm. And I, I wonder if, if R&J might perhaps go along to um, that group in, in Surbiton and do some reviewing of that book, because I have a feeling that erotic cookery could be quite good for daytime yes, TV. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, I hear you. Absolutely. Richard, what do you think? Uh, I, I think they need to be on the next uh, season of Doctor Who, actually. Hmm. Well, that could be arranged, I'm sure. Pull a few either, either that or um, anyone who's viewing their program on whatever that channel was, I, I think instead of playing the Richard and Judy program, they should play Rick Astley videos and they should Rick roll everybody who's trying to watch them. A very surreal suggestion, but you know, it might just work. Thank you very much, everyone. You've certainly reached out and touched two older people tonight, which I understand may be illegal under UK law, but is still widely practised in many council-run old folks' homes. Well, we're phasing them out. It's time to play Toad Suck Arkansas. Reverse Shuffle Six Card Strip Poker Red. Yes, that's right. Uh, it basically, I think this may be one of the last times we play this, actually, but um, let's give it a good run. Uh, I think you probably know the form by now, but if not, I'll just tell you very quickly. I'm going to think of a person from literature, a character, an author, or a personality. Um, they may be real, they may be fictional. It's up to the panel to guess. They can ask me questions, each one in turn. Um, to get answers that will help them guess the identity. I'm, well, I always say I'm only going to answer yes or no, but I end up being a fool to myself and giving way too much information away. Um, and when, when you're ready to make your guess panel, you've got to wait until it's your turn. That's quite important. And it can't be a turn in which you've already asked a question. Okay, and now for listeners at home, a special feature, we're going to reveal who it is. Yes, for listeners only, the mystery person tonight is Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. Okay, you got that. So, Donna, first question, please. Is it a male fiction author? It is not. Dave? Um, I'll wager one point on mm. it being Daphne du Maurier. 
Good grief. <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely wrong. It's not. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what was this? A little bit of telepathy guy on or something? A little bit of psychic influence here. Mm. Um, Richard, Richard, your guess, please. Or question, not guess, your question. Okay. Let me just divine this question from the Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> Is this... No Googling, guys. Alive. Um, no. And Sarah. Right. Just making a note here. Is it a character? That is such a good question, Sarah. And it is. It is a character. I yes. knew it. Yes. Donna. Oh, sorry. I need to know what is the end Does of the... Does invalidate my question? I don't think anything could invalidate your question. I can't even remember what it was. What, what, yeah, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> Did I ask the void? I, I said, were they alive? I mean, is that as in they die in, in their story or they're just not alive because they're a character? Is that another question? No, not yet. You lost me again completely there. No, no, I, I, I know what he's saying, but I'm not going to answer. He's going to have to wait till the next round. That's the end of round one. Round two, I'm going to give you a free clue. Diagnosed with OCD. Donna. Hmm. Diagnosed with OCD. Yep. Character. Um, is it a male character? Yes. Um, Dave, you made a guess last time. Pass on this time. Richard, what's yours? Was he played by... No, hang yes, on a minute. Yes. I want to change my question. Yes. My ooh, question ooh. is, I I'm going to uh, bid all my points. No. Yes, I am. Oh, God. Uh, on Melvin Udall from As Good As It Gets. <laughs> That's absolutely wrong, and you knew it was going to be wrong. Wow. No, I didn't. You <laughs> did. Oh, oh, Richard, Richard, you you know what? I mean, oh, you just, you've just thrown away your chance of... of uh, I buy them back? You can't. <laughs> Well, maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe some of the other panellists were amenable. Sarah, your question. Because I'm a guest, can I ask a sort of dual partite question? Oh, God. Because I don't, I don't know if that question was the same as me asking, was it played by Jack Nicholson? Is that yes, the same it, it one? Yes, it was. Oh, right, right. Okay, forget that. Um, is this a children's character? <laughs> yes, is it is. It is. Ah, wow. You see? And I mean, are we only at the end of the second round? And Sarah seems to be storming I, ahead here. I know the mind of Mr. Cox. To, ooh, oh. <laughs> if you do, could you explain it to me, please? Um, <laughs> Donna, third round, your question, please. Hmm. Well, I was going to make a guess, but that completely threw me off. Um, hmm. Um, is the genre science fiction? No, it's not. Dave. Right. I've got, I've got an idea, but I don't know the name of the character. Um, does the story involve a dog being killed with a pitchfork? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. No, it doesn't. He's not got OCD. <laughs> I don't know. I knew there was something up with him. Give me a break. Oh, I, I can only I... get to libraries to keep warm. I don't... I, I can see the logic. Anything. No, I think that was a very, very logical question, actually. I understand that. Sarah. Is this character in a book by Jacqueline Wilson? Actually, no. And that's the end of round three. I get to ask a question. Well, you Ooh, didn't. You, you, you gave all your points away, didn't you? No, that was, that was round two. 
I mean, I don't know. I don't know, panelists. It's up. It's up to your fellow panelists if they they want to let you in again. Please. Tell you what you can. <laughs> what do you say? I'm not going to say anything. What do you say? Oh, let him in. All right, now, Richard. Soft-hearted yeah, as long as he promises said yes. to promising promises to promises to wipe his feet and not make a mess on the carpet. We'll let him in. <laughs> I won't sit down. <laughs> All right, Richard. Um. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just attention seeking. That's all you just attention seeking. I'm going to give you a clue. I'm going to give you a clue, right? That's the, I'm definitely considering that at the end of round three. You get a clue. You get another clue. A Warsaw street is named after him. Donna. Okay. <laughs> sure, that's giving it away to you now. No Googling. I can hear. I'm watching you. Uh, I never use Google. I know. Um is the genre mystery it's not no dave oh i'm so far out of touch with what this could even possibly be is it <laughs> you're gonna kick is yourself it, is it a german character no it's not richard you're back in the game courtesy of sarah uh, oh god um <laughs> is it harry potter it oh. What do you think? No, it's not Harry Potter. Sarah, and around four, Sorry, can Sarah. I have a quick, can I have a quick recap? Yeah. Because I didn't hear what you said about the street. No, not this time. I, I gave away the, the whole Jake Nicholson was um, Melvin Udall. Hang on, was that Warsaw or Walsall? <laughs> yes, Warsaw. I didn't hear that. Because that, those are two completely different things, aren't yeah, they? You know, you, it's the only 17. Warsaw. Can you clarify? Warsaw. 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 This is getting very alarming now. I like the idea of Harry Potter. I'm still going on Harry Potter with OCD. I think that's something JK missed wildly. You know, endlessly sorting his potions and never making any spells, wouldn't he? It'd be fantastic. It's a much better book. Sarah. I haven't had my, I haven't had my question yet. I'm no. feeling the pressure. Um, yeah, me too. It's a children's <laughs> character set, and it's in Warsaw. It's set in Poland. A well, Warsaw, no, actually, I, I, the clue I gave you no. was a Warsaw Street is named after him. Yeah, which one? Oh, oh, <laughs> I'm going to um, tell you that. No, no, you told us the, the oh. last one. <laughs> oh. That's that's kind of not helping me at the moment, but I feel it should. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you: Is yes. this um, a what you might describe as a contemporary children's novel, as opposed to a classic? It is a classic. It's, oh, a it's a classic. And that's the end of round four. I am going to give you, because I'm so generous and full to myself, I'm going to give yet another clue. And it's this, it's a, you've got to get it this time. It's the first foreign language translation to be featured on the New York Times bestseller list. Donna. Well, I am going to um, rely on my secret source, which is not Google. And I'm going to bet all my points. That's two points. Stop drinking that secret sauce. Winnie the Pooh. Oh, how do you do it? How do you do it? It's witchcraft. It's witchcraft or it's Google. If it's not Google, I don't know. Yes. It is not Google and it is not Yahoo. Yeah, absolutely right. It is. It is. It is. Well, I think, I think this is dodgy. I think it's, yeah. I think it's well dodgy, actually. My dad it's well dodgy. Yeah. 
when did Winnie the Pooh get OCD? I don't remember that. All oh, right. Well, if you if you want me to tell you, I will. In December 2000, the Canadian Medical Association Journal diagnosed Winnie the Pooh as showing signs of obsessive compulsive disorder. They also said that Tigger showed signs of ADHD, which I can never quite remember what it stands for. Um, he first appeared in 1925. A Warsaw Street is indeed named after him. It was. I, I was. I was just picking these 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 little factoids out, hopefully to lay a really false trail for you. But I didn't manage to fool Donna. It was the first foreign language translation to be featured on the New York Times bestseller list. How can it be foreign language, you ask? It was written in English. Well, because it was then, it was, that's right, it was translated into Latin. Winnie Ila Pooh. Winnie Ila Pooh. And the other clue was going to be Winnipeg, Manitoba. Christopher Milne had named his teddy after Winnipeg, a bear, which he and his father often saw at London Zoo, and Pooh, a swan they had met while on holiday. Um, well, well, I would like to say that although I didn't get the answer, I did get the questions right. You did get the questions right. I think I think you showed extraordinary pluck, actually. <laughs> can I can I get an extra point for meeting Christopher Robin's son in the bookshop? Yes, he ran. absolutely. Yes. Could, can I get an extra and point? There were... In a Tigger movie on holiday. You saw a Tigger movie? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Another point for that. Absolutely. I, no, I think that's all rubbish. No, I did watch it. I woke up and they, they were playing it. And there's no A.A. Milne in the bookshop either, because Christopher Robin hated Winnie the Pooh. Yes, he? he did, apparently. And something else that I, um, I was amazed by um, when I learned, um, American producer Stephen Schlesinger purchased U.S. and Canadian merchandising television recording and other rights from A.A. Milne in 1930 for a $1,000 advance and 66% of Schlesinger's income, thus creating the modern licensing industry. Didn't happen before that. So it created the whole industry. Schlesinger marketed Pooh and his friends for 20 years, creating the first Pooh doll record board game, Puzzle Doll, US radio broadcast on NBC, animation and film. By 1938, Pooh was a $50 million a year business. Isn't that amazing? And today, Pooh-related merchandise... That's a funny expression, isn't it? Pooh-related merchandise no, I... has been reported to bring the Walt Disney Company approximately $1 billion a year. How about that? That's... The devil of capitalism started with A.A. Mill. Yeah, indeed it did, yes. That's, no. that's, probably, that's probably not an uncommon uh, expression to hear in Amsterdam back street, I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> <laughs> All I've got to do is invent a time machine and convince Christopher Robin to go back in time with me to kill his father. Exactly. Well, I've got a little bit of um, calculating to do. It's getting tense. It's getting sweaty. It's time to crown the Latopian of the week. Yes, and here we are. Um, I've been a little bit generous with the points, as you probably noticed, gentle listener, and this is how it works out. It's quite exciting, actually. Um, in last place, sadly, Richard, got some bad news for you. I won. No. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him. Um, eight points. But, you know, it's playing the game that counts, really, isn't it? Um, in third place... Yes, I have to work this out probably. Third place, Dave, you had 13 points. A creditable score, I thought. But, but in joint first place, we have the usually strong performance of Donna Borman, equaled this week by our special guest, Sarah, 
with 14 points. Congratulations. Yay. I think it's the first time a tie. Let's hope you're in the week, you two guys. Congratulations. Yay. Well done. <laughs> well done. Do, do, do we have a playoff now? <laughs> well, you can if you want to. <laughs> no, 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 I'll lose. Not <laughs> wrestling. Not wrestling. Uh, okay, well, we've had some fun tonight. I want to say thank you so much to Donna Borman. Well, you can hear five days a week, of course, on Utopia Daily, bringing us the, the right report. Uh, Dave Bartram, Lofat, Tall, Latte, probably that guy over in the corner of the library who you've been sort of hudging away from. Um, and, of course, Richard Howes. It's been a long time since Richard's been with us. He's been busy on the National Academy of Writing course here in the UK. Very good to have Richard back again. And finally, of course, the first time on our sort of newly reincarnated Utopia After Dark, Sarah. And Sarah, who is making an amazing impact in the US publishing scene, Sarah Davis, the Greenhouse Literary Agency. You can contact her, I'm sure, through a link in the show notes. comes to you from Litopia Writers Colony, www.litopia.com. Show notes and links mentioned in this program can be found on our podcast website, podcast.litopia.com. Litopia After Dark is recorded before a live audience on Ustream every Friday at 8 p.m. London time, 3 p.m. New York, 12 noon Los Angeles. Come along and be part of the show. Full instructions on the website. If you like what you've just heard, tell your friends and post a review on iTunes. We'll see you next week.